Uh, I want to uh, share uh, with you uh, as we continue to uh, move forward in, in the book of Acts, uh, we, we talked last week about the radical uh, ordinary hospitality uh, that we have uh, as a body of believers, and that when we are radical with this hospitality, when we are radical with our grace, it seeks to make strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. I'm going to use, continue to use that thought as kind of a mantra as we dare to be the church on the south side of South Bend. And over and over again through the book of Acts, we're going to see this kind of thread being pulled through that entire, in, in that entire book. And I want to pull out a, a few verses from Acts chapter 6. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read it from my text uh, here, Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against those of the Aramaic-speaking community because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I just pause there because that's what happens sometimes. As you gather together as family, there's going to be, it's going to feel like sometimes there's complaining. It's just quite natural. But it was very interesting that it happened because it, it made the church aware of a need. And so this is how they dealt with it. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the, uh, the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of wisdom and spirit. We will turn their, this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith." I just want to briefly touch on this. Uh, uh, they saw a need. It was aware. They were aware of it, and it was present. They did not neglect it, nor did they brush it under the rug. And that was that need that, that caused the church to say, you know, we need to kind of expand our, our vision here. We need to establish people who are going to be what they call deacons or ministers, people who would serve. Just like you and I, they chose servants that would just naturally fit into those places. And as they do, the word of God spreads. This coming Sunday, uh, we're going to do something uh, very different than what we normally do on a Sunday morning. Uh, uh, we're going to turn our worship service and the worship area into a, a fair, <laughs> if you will. We're going to take the chairs and, and spread them around tables, and we'll have tables and displays on the outside. We're going to have a brief uh, worship and communion time, and then we're going to have an opportunity to explore what those needs are. What are the needs that are among us? And how do the ministry teams, how do the, minist the ministry of this church meet those needs? And the reason why we want to do that is we're going to we want to be able to share the ways in which you, all of us, can serve in those ministries. We've talked in the past about how we need people to be able to serve, but sometimes when we say those kind of things, you might be thinking, well, I don't know what to do. 
I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know how I fit in. And so next week, we're going to look in that. We're going to have conversations about how that works. And hopefully, this will communicate very well to all of us as a congregation, as we gather together, uh, how we carry out the vision and the mission through the various ministries of our church. So I hope that you will plan to attend uh, next week, even though it's just kind of a different kind of a worship service. Uh, I hope you'll come because we're also going to serve you lunch. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna serve walking tacos, so it's not going to be... Have you, anybody ever had a walking taco before? All right, we've got, we know some people that know what a waco is. Uh, we're we're going to have walking tacos and uh, chocolate chip cookies, and so we'll feed you lunch. We're going to feed the kids lunch as well, and uh, make sure that your needs are all taken care of, and we're going to enjoy a time of fellowship together as a church because that's what we do. And we're going to talk about what we do as a congregation. So I hope you'll come. I hope you'll uh, be excited about that. And, and I hope that in all of that, uh, we can together anticipate how God's word will spread throughout our ministries. Uh, one of uh, this past week, uh, you saw the uh, slides for uh, Trunk or Treat. And I just want to thank all of you that came just like Katie did. What a, what a blessed time it was. We moved it inside, which I think was very wise, because we got quite a bit of snow on Halloween. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but that did not deter the children. We had, I think, Jimmy, we served over 600 hot dogs. Is that correct? So that's probably about how many people that came out for Trunk or Treat. Uh, and Katie and I, we, had this, we were going to be Linus and Lucy from Peanuts, but we knew it was going to be cold, and that was... There was no way I was going to wear a striped T-shirt out there in the, in the cold. So we're like, okay, let's, let's figure out what we're going to do. We won't, so that's why we decided to do Pooh and Piglet and Tigger and Eeyore, okay? And so in preparation for Trunk or Treat, Katie and I said, let's, let's watch the movie. You know, the 1977 or 78 with Sebastian Cabot and, and the, all the voices that you know very well. And if you haven't watched it, you should. Uh, but one of the moments in there uh, is when I, I love where, where the rabbit and, and Pooh and Piglet go out into the woods and they take Tigger with them to try to lose him in the woods. And rabbit, yeah, that's that, aw, yeah, <laughs> poor Tigger. Don't worry about Tigger. He took care of himself. He knew where he was the whole time. They thought they lost him. They ended up getting lost themselves, right? So, and Rabbit is out in the woods by himself and, uh, and, and scared, and Tigger ends up coming and finding him and bounces him out of the, out of the woods, okay? So he was, he was a lost and found rabbit. That's, I remember that's what the, the narrator says in, in, that, in that movie. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think, I don't know if you've ever had the traumatic experience of losing a child in the mall, or maybe as a child, you remember, I got lost. Actually, a child doesn't say that. Think about that for a minute. Think about how a child in, uh, reacts to that whole idea of being lost. It's not, they never say, I was lost. They will look at their parents and say, you were lost, and I couldn't find you. Now, think about that for a minute. I mean, that's real because for a child, they trust their parents to always be by their side. And so it's not that they don't know where they are. It's that they don't have the security to have mom and dad beside them. And so they will say, you got lost and I couldn't find you. I think it's actually a, a picture of, uh, of the story from Genesis that we've looked at before, where uh, 
um, Adam and Eve. They, they take a bite of the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and then they hide from God. And God calls out to Adam, and he says, what do you say to Adam? Remember? What does God say to Adam? He cries out to, for Adam. He says, where are you? And, and we've talked about that before. It's like, no, he, it's God. He doesn't lose ev- any one of us. He knows exactly where we are. It's the same thing as a child where, a ch- where God is saying, where are you? You're not where you are supposed to be, which is beside me, which is in my presence. And Adam, you have left my presence. He is lost. He is lost. And I think that that's a really good description of what it is like to be lost. Because think about it, who is lost? We use that word in the church often to think about our evangelistic efforts in in our neighborhood, in our world. And we think about if you're here today, you probably you probably wouldn't describe yourself as lost because you're found. You have a place. You're, you're present here. And we think of those who are on the outside as being lost. In fact, Jesus will uh, talk about his mission, and we often will attach ourselves to Jesus' mission when he says, salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And so it's the same for us. We want to seek and save that which is lost. But the question remains, who are the lost? We wouldn't consider, maybe not consider ourselves to be lost. We might look at somebody else and say, that person is really lost. Hopefully nobody is saying that about a neighbor here in our church service this morning. Or we think of our mission, and we indeed may look at our neighborhood And we think of these are the lost that need to be found. It motivates us, right? I want to step back and and kind of have us look at ourselves. Where are you today? Are you found or are you lost? Let's dig into the text a little bit because I want to identify three people that we see that are lost in the text. We'll continue our study through the book of Acts starting in chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in the charge of all the treasury of of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip said. How can I, he said, unless somebody explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In its humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Who is lost? Well, obviously, we look at this text and we see it's the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He was the one that needed the gospel message preached to him. But notice who the Ethiopian eunuch was. He was in Jerusalem. The text says he went to Jerusalem to worship, which means he was a Jew. And he, had, he was probably on, coming back from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the high holy days, which had been either Passover or the Day of Atonement. He, had, he, he knows very well the traditions and, and uh, uh, the practices of this faith that he embraces. And he has access and ability to read the text. He's reading Isaiah the prophet. In that passage, as Philip is explaining this more thoroughly to him and attaching this passage, which is the passage of the suffering servant that we often identify with this, that talks about Jesus. And, and, and Philip connects the dots for him. Earlier in that passage from Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, it's one that seems a little bit more familiar to us because it describes Jesus. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The Lord lays upon his servant all of our sins. This is what this text describes long before Jesus would come on the scene. And this is what happens when Jesus does come and he dies on the cross, he's buried in the tomb and he's raised back from the dead. This is the image that this Ethiopian eunuch would have understood of the suffering lamb who had had all of the sins of Israel placed on the lamb once a year to make atonement for all of our sins. And this Jesus would bring this sacrifice once for all. But this man was devoted. How would we say that he was lost? I mean, we look at this text because we know what's going to happen with him, how he's going to be convicted. But this person is maybe like you and I, where we are devoted to God, but we each need to come to a place where I allow God to be my sacrifice. Because sometimes in our devotion, we can look at ourselves sometimes in a very prideful way and say, well, my efforts are good. My behavior is fairly clean. I'm serving in all that I do. But I still need Jesus' blood to wash away my sins. I'm still lost if I do not allow him to cover over all of my sins. 
I do not allow that, that suffering servant to take my sins to the cross and to cover over all of those things. That may be where we might find ourselves today. Let's look at the second character in this story. In Acts chapter 9, it will continue on. Meanwhile, Saul, we, 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 we looked at Saul a little bit, very briefly. He was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is the setup here. This is this Saul who was persecuting the church, who stood and gave approval to those who martyred Stephen to death and stoned him. He stood on the outside, and, and, he, and he held their cloaks, and he gave approval as a Pharisee that this man should be killed. This is the setup and in this setup, now we have this, inter this interaction that God is going to have, Lord Jesus is going to have, with somebody else. Sometimes we pass over this, but in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. Notice the difference here. Saul said, who are you, Lord? Ananias knew that it was the Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. And this, now just imagine, here's Saul, who is a persecutor of the church, and any opportunity that he has when he finds somebody that is a follower of Jesus Christ He's going to make sure that this person is suffering. And so Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done for your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel I will show him how, he must, how much he must suffer for my name. So who is lost in this story? It's Ananias. Ananias would consider himself to be a follower of the way, and yet he saw himself as a victim. And he saw those that, that were a part of his circle as victims. He was a faithful Person. In, in, in some ways, when we look at the, the story of the prodigal son, he's the older son who says, I've stayed with you all of my life. I've served you. I've never left you. I've never been lost. But he not only fears Saul, 
Saul doesn't deserve his forgiveness. Why would I go to him? I think what Ananias is struggling with, and it's something I think that we all struggle with at times, in our devotion to God and our following after God, we, we have this concept of what is fair and what is not. It's easy for us to forgive those people who are kind and loving. We might say, I forgive you after one or two apologies. But when that person continues to hurt you or continues to hurt those around you, it's not fair. Why should I, why should I waste my time? And he's weak and needs God's courage. But think about this. Think about what God is doing in this. Because he calls Ananias to go to Saul. Who better to demonstrate God's forgiveness than the person who represents those who are offended and persecuted by Saul? We are lost. We are lost when we do not allow grace and forgiveness to be a part of our lives. No matter how unfair or fair we might think it is, our lives, as we follow Jesus, should be one of grace and mercy. And the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit cannot use us to demonstrate this to our community if we can't even love our brothers and sisters. If, if we're going to take on the commission and dare to be the church on the south side of South Bend's, but, Bend, but we can't love the people that are next to us, we can't be used to bring that message. And this is something powerful that God is doing with Ananias here. Go to Saul, the person that you're going to have the hardest time forgiving, and bring my message to him. And then the last part of this text. The conclusion of this story. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul. Oh. I mean, Ananias is not, it, this, isn't, this isn't one of those things where he walks in and, and, and he, he, he just kind of does this little gesture and touches him really quickly. Like, you know, we've, We've been there in that situation before. No, he, he actually boldly goes and he calls him brother. That's powerful. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul recognized that he needed sight but there was something else that needed to happen in his life. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Who's lost in this story? Well, obviously, it's Saul. I mean, of all of, this, of all the individuals that we've talked about today, we can look at Saul and we can say, definitely, he is the one that is lost. He is the, he, but he would consider himself and would say these words in his letters to the church following. He would say, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like he was, he was the most uh, 
aggressive follower of God. He was prideful of that, and he, and he was boastful about pushing people out onto the margins. He was boastful about the way that he threatened other people. He did what he did because he thought he was in the right. And according to the law, in many ways he was. But God's greater plan for Saul, which was described to him on that road, was to not only be able to go to the people that he knew, but to go to people that he would even be challenged more to accept, and that would be the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit cannot use us unless we humble ourselves, unless we are teachable, unless we are moldable. Those who are lost, those of us who are lost, need to be able to say, what do you want me to do, God? I humble myself before you. I want to pull out a thought from this, uh, this passage, and we see this as a theme throughout the entire book of Acts, because lives are being transformed. We see the life of the devoted in or the Ethiopian eunuch. We see the life of the victim, the person who is on the inside and, 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 and has been mistreated. We see the life of the persecutor. And we see other individuals all along the way, even the large crowds, as they are affected by the sermon that Peter preached earlier on. One thing is marking this church as it is growing. And people are making decisions to follow Jesus Christ by being baptized. By being baptized. So what does that even mean? When we, when we and, and there are probably many of us in this room who have been baptized at one point or another, maybe a few times in our lives. Paul would write about baptism, and he would give us a beautiful picture of what it look, looks like. And in Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to our sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may have new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's a beautiful picture of what happens. It's not, it's not just getting dunked underwater. It's, there's something that happens to us when we say, I, I want to be baptized. First of all, it's you are changed. Why baptism? To be changed. We often call that, uh, we use the word repentance, which sometimes, sometimes is a word that gets lost on us as a, as a church word, but it simply means to go in a different direction. It means that we've been walking one way our entire life, like Saul, who has been walking and almost stubbornly walking in this direction, thinking that he was right the entire time. 
But he, but he recognizes on, and, and it's in a moment that that direction is not the way that I want to be going. I'm lost. I'm not in the presence of God. He's back here. And I change and I decide I need to turn around and I need to go in the right direction. But this changing also is a, is a point because any time that we change our behavior, any time that we change our, our way of living, it is like we are dying. <laughs> it, is, it is a picture of death for us because we allow that old person to be killed and put away and buried. And this change causes that to happen for us. The second reason why we are baptized is to be forgiven. Because as we are, as Paul talked about there in Romans, as we go under that water, that water is like his blood that washes over us and washes away, washes away all of our iniquity, all of our, all of our sin, so that we look different. We are different. And thirdly, why? Why baptism? To be reborn. Because just as Jesus did not remain in the grave, and he did not remain on the cross, he came up out of that grave, and he is brand new. He is resurrected, and we are raised with him. We are new, a new creation, the scriptures will talk about. We have a new life, and this new life is marked by the Holy Spirit, and we've talked about that already. Just like those those flames of fire are lighted upon the disciples' heads on the day that the Holy Spirit came, we are now commissioned to be his presence in the world. We receive his Holy Spirit. So this morning, <laughs> perhaps you may be asking, much like the Ethiopian eunuch, well, here's water. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And I, as I prepared, as I was looking at the book of Acts, I knew that we were going to pass by this, these passages of Scripture. And, and, I, and I talked to the elders about it, and I said, you know what? There's no way that we can get past this and not deal with it. Because we have water today. And I'm also very thankful that it's warm. <laughs> Jimmy and Wayne, Jimmy, Jimmy Kenyon and Wayne Carner did a ton of work to get the baptistry not only cleaned and filled, but the heat pump is working. And they were joking around with me all the way up to the beginning of service today, uh, expecting me to think that it was going to be 58 degrees there. But I can tell you right now, we have warm water. <laughs> and... And please understand, uh, what, we, what we normally do at Living Stones, I love and appreciate because there's a lot of teaching that goes into that to prepare uh, individuals. But there are times where we're going to be like the Ethiopian eunuch who say, you know what, this needs to happen now, and I cannot wait. So this morning, we're going to, do, we're going to have an invitation. And if the band wants to come up and uh, prepare for this, I'll explain a little bit about what's going to happen. Uh, so many of us have probably been in church situations before where we, uh, you have an invitation hymn or you have an altar call and, uh, and people are invited to come forward and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and to be baptized. 
And, uh, but if you've never experienced that before, I'll describe it even a little bit more because it can be, feel really threatening. It's like, you mean I have to walk up front and talk to everybody? Well, we're not going to make you say, make you uncomfortable, and I would never want to do that. But if this morning you are like the Ethiopian eunuch and you say, you know what, I need to do this. I need to do this. I need my life to be transformed today, and I cannot wait. We are ready for you. And so as we sing this song, I'll be standing up here ready to receive you if you want to be baptized this morning. Uh, and also, I realized that you probably have not come prepared for this. Because generally when we do this, we, you bring a backpack and you've got to change of clothes. All you have on are the clothes on your back. Well, we have, we're not going to do naked baptism. We're not, that, we're not that kind of church. I got robes. I talked to a friend of mine who is a preacher in another church, and I knew they had robes. And so I said, can we borrow your robes? So I have about eight robes out uh, that are ready and ready for, for this kind of opportunity. So not only do we have hot water, but we have towels and we have robes for you. And if this morning is a, is a morning that you're saying, I don't want to wait any longer, I want to do this. Uh, uh, we, are, we are ready. So you come forward. We'll talk with you. We'll take a confession of faith. And then as uh, we continue on our worship, we'll, we'll have an opportunity where you can be changed. You can change clothes. We'll bring you up here. We'll baptize you. And uh, uh, we'll just see what God does here. So um, let me pray. And uh, we'll go ahead and go into our time of invitation. Father, thank you. I thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for this, this message of transformation. Thank you, Father, for helping us all to recognize uh, that we might be in a lost state. Uh, and we're looking and saying, where are you? But you're doing the same. I thank you, Father, for convicting our hearts that we might change and turn around and walk towards you, which will be your delight and, and our joy. Thank you, Father, for moving among us uh, this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for your love that calls us your beloved sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.